Nice to see you here today. How are you doing? All right? A couple of weeks ago, I kicked off a series in which we began to talk about the gospel. And wasn't it great, those few songs we've just sung, because it's all about the gospel, wasn't it? About being um, the child of God and uh, God being our Father, and He's got a place for us. And then before that, it was talking about God changing us from glory to glory, and we're going to come to that in a couple of weeks. But um, can you help me for a moment, because I just want to get my head straight about what this is all about, right? The gospel. So the gospel literally means... The gospel literally means... The gospel literally means good news. What does the good news do? It brings great joy. It brings joy. Who's the gospel for? To all people, right? So the gospel is the good news. So you've you got to help me, but I'm just trying to remember, right? The gospel is the good news, all right? And the good news brings great joy, and that great joy is for all people. Cool. That's excellent. Well done. And from the book of Genesis two weeks ago, we discovered that God created us in his image to be like him so we could know him. And that's some of the good news of the gospel. Talking about news, have you noticed the trees disappearing out there in the car park? Anyone notice that? Those two big trees? And uh, they actually were a health hazard. We had to take them down because health and safety issues. And so that's... One of those. Unfortunately, that was what happened to them. Bad news is they're being removed, right? Good news is they won't fall on anybody or dent your car or injure somebody, right? The bad news is that the lovely trees aren't there anymore. But the good news is that we're getting some new ones to replace them. So, you know, that's good, isn't it? So talking about gardens and trees, I want us to go to the first mention of a garden. And that was a good segue, wasn't it? A good... That's very good. The first mention of a garden in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Now, let me put a little parenthesis around my message today because I, I loved the first one because it was also positive and fantastic, you know. But the gospel actually has other parts to it, which I fully understand it, which are not so good news, all right? So today is sort of a little bit of the bad news about the good news. Are you with me? Cool. I'm not, but... Hopefully some understand that. Genesis 2. Here we go. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. There he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. And in the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis is the book of so many firsts, isn't it? And already in chapter 1, a couple of weeks ago, we had the first operation in the Bible where God anesthetized Adam and surgically removes part of him to make Eve, right? You saw that, didn't you? And then we have the first landscape architect in this little passage and the first gardener in the Bible, God himself, where God designed and planted the first garden. And it was a beautiful garden full of Delicious, nutritious fruit for them to eat and keep them healthy. And God showcased in this garden two very special trees, not, not totara or not oaks or anything else, but they were in the middle of the tree, there were these unique specimens, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When we were kids, anyone else once was a kid? 
or maybe you were a child, sorry. You know, we, we were childs once, weren't we? Or children's or something, whatever we were. When we were kids, when, we were, when I was a kid anyway, I'm sure the same for you. Our mums and our dads and, or those that were looking after us, they placed boundaries around our lives, didn't they? To keep us safe and to help us to make right decisions. What, you know, what sort of boundaries did you have around your life? Don't play. That was the first one I thought of too. Don't go and play on the road. That was a good boundary. Or don't chase the ball from the drive onto the road without looking for the cars that are coming or whatever. You know, That's a, a really good boundary. Don't talk to strange people was another one you'd often tell your kids, right? And, and all those sorts of things. Boundaries. Why did we give boundaries to our kids? Because we wanted to keep them safe. We loved them. We cared for them. And we wanted their very best for their lives. That's right, isn't it? And so because God loved Adam and Eve, he put some boundaries in place around them to care for them, to protect them. So here we have further in that same chapter, verse 15. Here's the boundaries. God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may eat, sorry, freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. That's pretty amazing. Because I noticed, I hope you did too, God didn't put boundaries around their life. He actually only put one boundary around their life. Only one restriction. One no-go zone. One you must not. How easy that must have been to have one, don't you think? Only just one rule to obey. How simple could that be? Let's see what happens. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, with your, so when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, And also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Have I done something with my microphone, or is it all right? Because it's changed on me, is it? It's changed for good? Good. Did you make me seem deeper? Like a a radio announcer and all that stuff? That'll be good. When God made... Human beings, he gave us the ability to think, to feel, to dream, to create, to love, and so on. He didn't create robots, did he, who are programmed to merely react at a command or the push of a button. He gave us an amazing gift of free will and the ability to continually throughout our lives choose every day. And these verses in we've just read in Genesis 3, are the first account of this opportunity God has given them to exercise their free will. 
And the serpent entered the environment of that wonderful paradise, the garden, and verse 1 tells us he was more crafty than any other of the wild animals. Now, I don't think that's crafty like the craft group that meets on Wednesdays. Well, it could be for some of them, I guess. I don't know them, so they, you know. This word crafty can mean cunning, skilled at deceit. I'm sure none of the craft ladies are cunning and skilled at deceit. They're skilled at craft. So the serpent uses some very crafty, cunning, deceitful tactics on them. I've discovered there are some of the same tactics that are used on us right throughout our lives. And the first one are these words here. Did God really say? Did he really say that? You've heard that one on different guises, haven't you? Come on, did God really say that? Does his word really promise that? Did he promise you that? Does he really care about you actually? Does he really love you? Has he really got your best intentions in mind? Have you? These are really casting in them seeds of doubt. And these seeds of doubt were doubting God's words and doubting God's ways. His motivations. What is God really up to? And once these seeds of doubt have begun to sprout in their minds and begun to grow, the serpent then added these words, didn't he? We read them in verse 4 and 5 where he says, You will not certainly die. For God knows this. He knows that when you eat it, from your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that what you want? Because you know what God is holding out on you. He's a killjoy. He's shortchanging you. Can you really trust him? You'd be happier on your own, you know, if you could make up your own decision and carve out your own way in life, it'll be much better for you. Do you really trust God to know what's best for your life? You know, if you eat it, come on, eat it, because if you do, you'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be wise. You'll understand so much. Have a great experience. Go ahead. Go on. Do it. You know what here like fishing? Five people like fishing. You know where you get your rod on the boat and you sort of cast it out on the boat and, you know, or on the, from the rocks or whatever and you, you, know, you want to get this big fish. It's awesome, isn't it? When I was a kid back in the, when I was a kid back in the school holidays, we'd often at Wellington, go to the waterfront. And we didn't have rods, we just had a line, and we would tie a, a sinker to the line, and we'd tie hooks to the line, and then, you know, we'd, we'd put some juicy bait onto the hook, and you'd sort of get the line, and, you know, you'd have to sort of swing it around your head like this, wouldn't you? would get real momentum, get it going again, and you'd Blow it out there, you know, to see as far as you could go. And you have to make sure your foot's on the, on the, on the string here because otherwise the whole thing would disappear. And then you would hope that some poor fish would, would get that juicy bit of bait, you know, and it would, would chomp on it, and the hook would then would, would sort of um, hook in somewhere really lethal into the thing, and, 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 and then you could bring in that lovely big fish to have for dinner, you know full of bones, little spotties and all that sort of stuff. But you know, a large part of fishing is deception, I've discovered. You're enticing the fish with beautiful, juicy bait. And all the time you know that you've got this lethal hook there ready to try and capture that poor, unsuspecting little beast. 
The serpent firstly used doubt. But just like a good fisherman, he secondly used deception. And he presented the bait beautifully for Adam and Eve. He made them think, and all he had to say, and all he was offering was appetizing, and it was as enticing as possible, without revealing the pain and the devastating results of their action. It's exactly the same way, isn't it? That temptation is always presented to us. So Adam and Eve exercised their God-given free will to make a choice. This choice was entirely outside of God's plan and purpose for their lives. And it had immediate major consequences. Over the centuries, it's become known as the fall for good reason. Here are a couple of consequences. Firstly, a major consequence of the fall was there was a falling out with God. Look what it tells us in Genesis 3, verses 7 to 10. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I chuckled to myself reading that most times, thinking, fig leaves? What's going to happen when, when, when autumn arrives? It's not going to be too helpful, is it? Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So the first great tragedy of the fall was it caused That sin caused them to run away from God rather than run toward God. They were made in his image to be like him so they could be with him. But the moment they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, something happened to them that had never experienced before. They felt shame and they felt guilt and they felt fear and they tried to hide from the presence of God. And their intimate relationship with him was broken. Now, instead of becoming more like him, they've become less like him. How? Because they short-circuited the, pro- the process. See, part of the great news of the gospel is that we are made like him so we can be with him. But tragically, Adam and Eve allowed their desire to be like God by any means at all, to surpass their desire to be with God. And I believe it's a problem mankind wrestles with today. We try to be like God without being in relationship with Him. And He desires a close relationship with us, and it's actually as we are more and more with Him that we actually do become more and more like Him. That's the process, and the process is really important. But there is some good news in this tragic tale of failure. I find it amazing the very first question God asks Adam, the first question that God asks, it's recorded in the Bible actually, is the question, where are you? Where are you? Because the entire Bible is the story of God searching for people. 
And when God asks, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know. He's asking because despite their sin and failure, he's letting them know he still longs to have restored relationship with them. Where are you? One of the most astonishing truths of the gospel is that God voluntarily designed mankind with the ability to choose or reject his love. Wow. It's part of our free will. And whenever we choose to reject God, God hurts. However, God doesn't hurt just because he's lost something. He really is hurting because we have lost something. We've lost the relationship with our creator that we're supposed to have had and that he designed us to have with him. So one consequence is a falling out with God. Then the second one here is falling out with others. Once Eve's heard the serpent's dialogue and how good he makes it all seem, how this is going to be so wonderful to eat this fruit off that tree, She's so convinced, and it tells us a few words. If we remember back to that passage, it said she saw it was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. It was good, pleasing, desirable, very enticing words. The serpent had said to her that their eyes would be opened and they would be like God, and they would now know both good and evil. But it strikes me as really ironic that before they ate the fruit, God had given them everything that was good. And they had the good day by day. He provided for them good. He declared it was good. They knew it was good. They already were like God because he'd made them in his image. After eating the fruit, instead of having the good enhanced in their life, all that was highlighted now was evil. So not only was there a rift in their relationship with God as a consequence, but suddenly now there is this rift and this openness that they have with each other. Suddenly they realize they are very different from one another, hadn't even realized that before. They, they felt vulnerable in each other's presence, and they, for the very first time they became ashamed of who they were and ashamed of their differences and made superficial external cover-ups to try and cover up their brokenness that they now felt. I know you can draw the parallels as well as I can. We can see the consequences of this right throughout the human race, can't we? Shame for our weaknesses. Shame for our sins and mistakes. Suspicious of people around about us, those who are different from us, through color or language or whatever else it might be. And it's resulted in so much prejudice, hasn't it? And racism and relationship breakdown and friction between people and people groups, etc. right around the world. And look what happened. I, I find this really amusing, this little part. It's not really amusing, but, you know, my perverse sense of humor sees things amusing quite often. I think it's because I've been married to Jill for so long, I think. I was very prim and proper before those days. <laughs> Genesis 3, 12 to 13. I'm always in trouble when I preach. That's fine. But Genesis 3, 12 to 13. See where you can feel, well, this is strange. I don't know what happened then, but I'm in trouble. The man said, 
the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? The woman said, the servant deceived me. And I ate. (laughs) Do you think it's funny? Adam is blaming Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And even more, this is the, the strangest part of all, Adam actually really blames God. You gave me that woman and look what she's done. It's all your fault, God. The blame game. How good we've become at the blame game, right? It's always someone else's fault, right? And a lot of people blame God for the evil in the world even today. It's his fault. Everything that's wrong, it's his fault. Let's come back to that. Let's go to somewhere else here. Genesis 3, verse 16. The last part of this verse is very, very interesting. A lot of translations just say, you will desire for your husband, and he will, but he will rule over you. But actually, the original Greek, uh, the original, uh, what was it written in? Help me. Hebrew. The original Hebrew, I don't know Greek or Hebrew. I know a couple of Italians, but it's different. But um, that's a terrible joke. The original Hebrew here, and the New Living Translation and some of the other recent translations have picked this up. I understand this. It says, you will desire to control your husband. Who else understands that one? But he will rule over you. Wow. All joking aside, that is a very powerful verse. Because here at the fall, we have God saying to them, now that you've got this huge rift between you, between you and your relationship, which is to be one and to be loving, you, you will desire to control your husband, but he's going to rule over you. Wow, this is so different from God's design, isn't it? God designed, chapter 1 tells us he created male and female in his image to rule together in perfect harmony equals mutually honoring one another, an intimate relationship, etc., etc. But right here, as sin has entered, their relationships become fractured and the struggle for control of one another begins. They were created equal but no longer treat each other as such. What a tragedy. I look around the world today and right through the centuries, it's still going on. Another result of the fall is the destructive sexist mindset and degrading attitudes towards women, which has been so terrible right through the ages. Result of the fall. I always thought you were a feminist, Paul. Well, Mankind's broken relationship with God results in broken relationships with each other. Sin is never just breaking one of God's rules or a law of some sort of the land. It always has a very human cost. It affects how we treat each other. Sin and death entered creation through the fall. And if you read further on, if you've got some time, read through Genesis, you're just going to see graphic results of this fall in these first few chapters. Jealousy, anger, murder, oppression, societies divided, war, hatred, greed, all sorts of pain and grief, etc. carries on there. And people often say this about God. If God is real, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there poverty? Why is there heartache? Why are there horrendous 
diseases? Why is there war? Why is there crime and abuse and violence and corruption and atrocities and unfairness and so on and so on and so on? You know, the world's problems are really complex and we can't gloss them over with a glib little saying. Yet I know, and I know you know, that in the depths of our heart, the pain and problems of humanity are without doubt linked to what happened here in the fall. But when you started the series a couple of weeks ago, you said it was all about the good news of the gospel. What's good news about this today? Yeah, I know, I'm sorry. Carl and Andrew are away today, but Carl asked me to do this, so it's, I'm blaming him, it's his fault. Though I'm Belclutha, by the way, today, they're ministering at the church down there, so I know that'll be great. Where's the good news in all this stuff today? But I think it's really true that we always need to understand the problem before we really can understand and appreciate the answer. I quite like that, actually. We need to understand the problem before we can fully understand and appreciate the answer. Good news is even more exciting, isn't it, when all you're hearing is bad news. If you want some balance, make sure you come back next week. <laughs> That's the problem with the series. You've got to just pick out bits and go through in some ways, isn't it? don't know if someone else saw this, but about three or four weeks ago, I saw a report on the news of a horrific road accident which resulted in death. I think there were a few people that died in this accident. And the police officer who was interviewed said something that really stuck with me. He said this, if we all drove the way we did on the day we passed our driver's license, there would be very few crashes. True. Wouldn't you agree? But who would admit they really drive as carefully and as responsibly as the day they pass their license? See, because we have free will and make choices every moment, we're behind the wheel of a car, some of those choices have bad consequences, don't they? But hey, here's the solution. I've got a great idea. We could all drive and ride us and drive us cars. Couldn't we? We could, we could all, assume we will be. They tell us that there will be riderless drive, sorry, not riderless, driverless cars. Where you won't have to do anything but just sit there. Where all those free choices and all of how you drive will be taken away from us. There'll be no more accidents at all. Well, good luck with that one. When someone pulls the plug and they all crash. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. What a, that's all right, don't get sidetracked. That was Bryden's fault, I think. Yet in the same way, if we all, if everyone right across the planet lived the way God created us to live in his image, in his likeness, in close relationship with him and with others, loving God and loving people, how different this world would be. Some people say that if they were God, they'd have made human beings who couldn't fail. They'd be programmed to obey no matter what. Great idea. Worship. Pray. Read your Bible. Love. Worship. 
God didn't make unfeeling, pre-programmed, emotionless, soulless, robotic machines. He lovingly, purposely created us in his image to be like him, to know him. Free will to choose to love him or reject him. Robots don't love. Robots simply obey. Love can't be forced out of anybody. Love to be loved has to be given freely. And I believe that God has placed in the heart of every human being the desire to be like God and to know God, even when we can't identify it like that or even put words to that deep longing that's in our hearts. But the wonderful thing is that God has given us the means for those longings to be met. There were two trees in the center of the garden. And the one of them that was so wonderful was the tree of life. What a great picture pointing towards Jesus. God sent Jesus to the cross for all mankind. The cross was an instrument of death for Jesus, but amazingly, a tree of life for us. He made the way open for us to get to know him and to love him and to live for him and to make him known. Then he sent his Holy Spirit to keep working on us day after day to transform us in every area of our lives to become more and more like him. That's a good note to end, isn't it? What if we could stand together this morning asking the band, is that what you call them, the band? Not the brass band, but the worship band. To come. As I said earlier, earlier, this is sort of a little bit out of, you know, this is part of a series next week. I know that it's going to be some good balance that will come. So, but right now, let's just close our eyes for a moment in quietness and just ask the Holy Spirit if there's anything that's been said today which He can speak further to you right now, you can take away in your life. Sifting through all the words, let's just wait in quietness and just ask that. Holy Spirit, we ask you right now to speak into our hearts something we can take for our individual lives from you this morning.